Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Everybody wants to go ahead and move back to your seats. Hopefully everybody got some pancakes and waffles and bananas, mandarins, hot cocoa. Well, this feels good. Um, Sam and Kristen, where's Sam and Kristen? We're already clapping for everybody. Let's just clap for them. Um, Sam and Kristen have been on the mission field the past couple months. I highly encourage you to talk to them about their work. They're both with Youth of a Mission. Um, but we were just talking before the gathering, and they were kind of asking, like, how have the past two months been in the community? And I was sharing a little bit about what we've been doing and, and this transition. And, and we were talking about how, um, you know, how do we make decisions like this to come to one gathering, to gather everyone together? And um, you know, one of the things that I feel like the Lord's really put on my heart, and I think for our elders and for Daniel as well, is, you know, my role is not like Moses in the Old Testament, where like Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he hears from God and he brings that down. He just hands it off to the people because the, the people don't, if we're honest, they didn't really want anything to do with God. He's too scary. Um, but, but my role and, and so many of the, the teachers in our community and, and leaders, our role is actually to teach everybody to hear the voice of God. And we all, yeah, <laughs> revolutionary idea, right? Uh, and then we listen together and then we bring it all together and go, well, what's in, like, what's in common? What's God speaking to us all together? And it becomes this really kind of a safe place, but also a place where we're really kind of stepping out and believing big things for how God wants to speak to us. And that's you know, that, that's a continuation on of the kind of community that we want to be. We want to continue to learn how to hear the voice of God and, and do that together and to believe that all of us are capable of that. Um, and that, that's where vision comes from. It doesn't come from me branding really neat slogans and you guys just blindly accept it. It comes from all of us together learning how to do that with one another. And, um, this is a fulfillment of that, like what we're doing right now, this morning. This is a fulfillment of us learning how to be obedient, to put aside conventional wisdom, um, and, and to really choose into faithfulness with God. Um, and I'm really excited to see what he does next, and, and he's already given us so much vision for the next year. Um, but today is the first day of Advent. We're all, come on, we're all ready. We're all ready in a clap mode. Um, and so uh, we're going to be focusing through, the, through Advent, which is the next four Sundays, um, uh, uh, four different ideas about what the coming of Jesus means for us. Um, and so I'm going to pray, and we're going to get into the first one today. So Heavenly Father, uh, we testify that you're here, uh, that you are with us, um, that you have deemed all of us worthy of being in your presence, not because of what we have done or because of what we have not done, but because at the core of who we are, when everything is stripped away, we are your beloved. We are your children. We are your sons, your daughters, your image bearers. And there is nothing that we can do that changes that truth. That truth is what has drawn us in here. That truth is also the thing that we're seeking out, that it would seep down into our bones, that every fiber of our being would inhabit that truth that we are your children. 
And so, Father, I pray that today as we uh, kind of work through the Christmas story looking for hope, we know that what we're really looking for uh, is you and what you say about each one of us. And so our ears are open to hear your voice. Our eyes are open to see you move. Our hearts are open to receive your truth. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so today, the first Sunday of Advent, we're focusing on hope, that the advent of Jesus gives us hope that everything will be okay in the end. The advent of Jesus gives us a sense of hope that everything will be okay in the end. I've mentioned this uh, to you before, but there's a very, there's a difference between what we talk about as hope within our faith and I think what is often uh, conveyed to us that, you know, usually when we talk about hope in our normal everyday life, we're saying, well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow or, uh, you know, I really hope that I get a pony this Christmas or whatever it might be. You know, hope is this kind of vague, Megan, you got that on my list? Come through for me, girl. All right. I'm waiting for that pony. I've been waiting 20 years for that pony. Um, but hope is this kind of vague aspiration. Hope is, wouldn't it be nice if? Maybe this will happen. Maybe it won't. And that's often what we think about when we think about hope. And so when we read hope in Scripture, when we uh, look at this idea of, of hope, especially in the, the Advent season, that's what we think. Wouldn't it be nice if maybe perhaps God wanted to do something, if God wanted to change something in my life, if God wanted to speak to all of us together, if God actually wanted to rescue the world, wouldn't that be nice? But when we talk about hope, we're talking about something very different in the story of Jesus. We're talking about a certitude. We're talking about a deep level of confidence that God is going to do what God has said he is going to do. Because when we talk about hope, we're talking about God's character we're talking about his faithfulness to us. We're talking about his sovereignty to follow through on the things that he's promised. And so when we're looking at it specifically in Advent, that word Advent means coming. So the Advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, as we look back in remembrance of God's first coming in Jesus, it actually gives us, it shores up our confidence to look forward to his second coming as an event in, the, in history, in the future, but also to give us confidence in Jesus' coming in our own day. And that's so important for us. We have to kind of live in this creative tension between what God has done in the past and what God is doing in the future. And it gives us the fuel to continue to move uh, forward. And so hope in this regard then means almost like this patient endurance that we're called to as believers. But it gives us this trajectory. We know where it is that we're headed. That we don't believe that the future is just, oh, wouldn't it be nice if everything was rescued and redeemed? But we actually have this deep sense of confidence in God, that God has been working, God is working today, even if we don't always see it, and that God is also going to continue to work in the future. But what I really want us to tackle today is how do we experience uh, the tangible effects of hope in our own lives? Uh, especially when we find our, ourselves in those spaces of hopelessness. And I think this is where we can really lean into some of the stories from Scripture that, again, Advent is inviting us to look at, not just the, the, the birth of Jesus, but everything that came before it. The whole story of Israel before Jesus is them waiting in hopeful expectation for Yahweh to move, to rescue, and to redeem His people. 
And so as I've kind of looked over some of those prophetic uh, announcements from the Old Testament that kind of anticipate the coming of God in Jesus, this is really what I think is so powerful to me, that we need prophetic visions to wake us out of hopelessness so we can hope again. We need prophetic visions that break up that sense of hopelessness that we feel. Maybe it's a, the general narrative of your life might be one of hopelessness, but maybe there's just there's one, you're good, and there's this like one little sliver of your life. Or maybe it's for the whole human family. There's this general sense of hopelessness. We need the prophetic vision that breaks us out of that. And there's this really powerful pattern that we see in the prophets of the Old Testament. I'm thinking especially here, uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah or Isaiah. (laughs) You know we're not going to get through without me mispronouncing something, right? What was it a couple weeks ago? I said something. I don't know. There's this pattern that we see in the way that the prophets wrote to the people. We have to kind of imagine what's going on. We have uh, a chosen people who've been rescued out of Egypt. They've been given a new identity. They've been given a new calling. And they're kind of moving along, learning what God is like, learning how God is calling them to be this light for the rest of the world. But they begin to lose the plot pretty quickly, as many of us do, when we know that God's called us to something but we actually set our sights on lesser gods and and lower forms of existence because they make us feel safer. And so before long in the story of Israel, we see they're demanding that they want a king. They want someone. They want a representation just like everybody else. They say, well, Yahweh, like everybody else, gets a king and gets borders and all of this stuff. We want that too because that's going to make us feel more like a people. And God, out of His mercy, gives Israel what they want, even though that's not their ultimate desire. But he, He tells them, if I give you a king, this is what's going to happen, is that you're going to find yourself oppressed by your, the own, your own heads of state. And so we see, you know, Solomon and then David, he's pretty good, and then everything goes to garbage right after David. On all these kings, they're terrible. And they take advantage of the people. The taxation rates are insane. And, and people begin to live, all of Israel lives with this sense of hopelessness. And that hopelessness specifically is, it's never going to change. This is just, this is my lot in life. This is just how it's going to be. There's no upward mobility. There's no, you know, me growing into greater health or uh, greater financial prosperity. There's, we're kind of in this hopelessness that this is the way that the world works, and we just have to accept that. And the powerful thing about that form of hopelessness is that it actually leads to the core problem that we find in Israel that I think we find in ourselves too. It's what we call numbness that numbness is a form of despair. If anxiety is, I'm afraid of what tomorrow's going to bring, despair is, I'm afraid tomorrow's going to be just like today. It's not going to change. It's exactly the same. And we begin to live in the sense of numbness. We actually shut ourselves off to hope. We shut ourselves off to feeling because that's the only way that we know how to survive. And we accept the way the world is today is the way that it's always going to be. And so my goal is just to get to the end of the day in survival. But the problem is that numb things cannot feel. Numb things cannot move. How many of you, you know, you're sitting, you're sitting cross-legged or something and your legs go numb and you stand up and you're like walking around like this, you know? You can't, because you need your sense of feeling in order to move. When you're numb, you can't move. Nothing really works. And so you find yourself stuck. 
And this is the moment in history at this stuckness, this numbness, this hopelessness in Israel that God begins to send prophets. And prophets were mostly men and some women that were able to speak in a way that it actually broke Israel out of her numbness. But they didn't just come in and say, hey, guess what? Everything's going to be okay, and it's going to be great, and you can do it, and here's some bumper stickers to get you through the day. This isn't the pattern that we see in the Old Testament prophets. So many of the Old Testament prophets actually begin moving people from numbness to grief, which seems counterintuitive to a lot of us because we want to believe in positive thinking. But what we find in grief, we look at Jeremiah in in the book of Lamentations. You know, it's five long poems, and the first two are like, everything's garbage, and it all sucks, and everything's terrible. And then there's this bit in the the third poem where it's like, hey, maybe it's going to be okay. God's great. And it goes, oh, nope, never mind. Everything's terrible, and everything's garbage, and it's all, you know. And we see this in Jeremiah in in his own uh, collection of poems as well, is that they're making this invitation for Israel to grieve the fact that they're stuck, which seems very counterintuitive to us. But what the prophets are actually doing there through the language of poetry is they're giving people permission to feel because numb people can't feel anything and therefore numb people can't hope. And so grief actually becomes the doorway to give people permission to start to feel again. And they use this language of poetry because it's poetry that stirs the, the tepid heart that begins to engage us and allow us to feel again. Poetry and art, these are languages that go beyond mere description to tap into something deeper within the human spirit to give us permission to start feeling again. And we need to begin in that process of grief, grieving things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And so through that prophetic vision, people begin to break open this numbness, this hardness of heart. And we find that in that prophetic journey, that as people begin to grieve, they slowly begin to hope again. They slowly begin to believe that something other than the world as it is today is possible. Through the prophetic visions, through the prophetic words, Israel's given the ability to dream of possibilities and promises that maybe everything doesn't have to be the same. Maybe there is opportunity to grow, to change, to envision a better world. And so I want us to take a moment right now, and I want us to reflect and kind of enter into that prophetic journey with Israel that we have to begin by naming our numbness and allowing it to be the gateway towards us grieving and then eventually finding hope. And so these are the questions that I want you to ponder in your own heart with the Lord in this moment. Where are you numb right now? Where have you lost hope? Like I said, maybe the general trajectory of your life right now is pretty hopeless, and you're actually here because you want to hope again. But maybe there's just one particular avenue of your life, relationship, career, personal health, whatever it might be, that you on, if you're honest with yourself, you feel pretty hope, hopeless. And you've numbed yourself to it because the feelings are too much. But maybe that actually becomes the gateway for God to do something miraculous in your life. So we're gonna, I'm going to pray. I'm just going to give you a moment uh, to reflect on this. So, Father, we know that you have called us to be people of hope. But before we get there, 
We need to recognize the places in our own hearts where we're numb, where we have uh, hearts of stone that are not capable of being moved because we've learned how to survive. We've cut ourselves off to believing that tomorrow can be different, tomorrow can be better. So Holy Spirit, right now, would you illuminate to each of your dear ones here a specific place in each of our hearts where perhaps we have gone numb from hopelessness. So naming the numbness begins to open us to grief and learning how to step into grief, trusting the Lord to walk us along the process breaks us open so that we can actually start to hope again. And this is what we find again and again in the the pattern of Scripture. We have kind of the last move in Israel's story in the Old Testament is this prophetic call that breaks Israel open to begin to hope again. And and as we've looked at uh, before, the, the rebuilding of Israel in the very last of the history books in Nehemiah and Ezra, as they come back out of exile and they begin to envision uh, this new world, a reclaiming of their people group. But there's one fascinating thing that happens but by the beginning of the New Testament. So we're talking about um, maybe a 400-year period of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, is that Israel recognized that even coming out of exile, coming back to their land, reestablishing the city of Jerusalem, reestablishing their boundaries, they were still missing something, and that something was the voice of God, the presence of God. And so for 400 years, Israel recognized maybe we're not in a physical exile, but we're still in a spiritual exile. We've come home, but God's presence isn't necessarily with us in the way that we've been used to having it. And so there's these questions at the beginning of the New Testament, at the beginning of the Gospels, that Israel is asking, which is, when is God going to do what He promised us? When are we going to see Emmanuel, God with us? When are we going to see him deliver on these promises to rescue and redeem us? Because we remember, at the, you know, towards the end of the Old Testament, Israel is in exile in Babylon, but at the beginning of the New, they're still in, under the oppressive empire of Rome. And so they're still wondering, when are, when are we going to see this thing happen? And that actually opens us up to understand the Christmas story in some really powerful ways. And so many of you are familiar with the story. There's a there's this uh, young woman, maybe in her teenage years. Her name is Mary, and she's betrothed to this man Joseph, although they're not yet married. And then an angel uh, reveals himself to her and gives her this prophetic announcement. And can you imagine that she lives kind of in the middle of nowhere in Israel? She's too young. She's unmarried. Nothing seems to necessarily make sense. She's living with this kind of expectation that Israel's been cultivating uh, for hundreds of years. And then this angel comes to her and gives her this prophetic word that she was going to be kind of ground zero of where God was going to begin his rescue project. That it was in her womb that she was going to give birth to a son. She was to name him Jesus or Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. He says she'll be called or the, the baby will be called the Son of the Most High, that He's going to reign forever, that His kingdom will have no end. Can you imagine what that's like for Mary to receive that kind of pronouncement? Like, you're, you're the one. You're the person. 
you're the person that God has chosen to rescue and redeem. Not only Israel, but the whole world. And so we're going to jump into the story in Luke 1, beginning in verse 39. And so this is right after Mary's received this word from the angel, and she actually goes to visit her cousin, um, who's also pregnant. She's about six months pregnant, um, you know, early, uh, six months earlier than Mary. And this is uh, an absolutely amazing point in this story. So at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. So Elizabeth is her cousin. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Does anybody know what that baby's name is? John the Baptist. J the B. I don't think that's what it said on his birth certificate. I think the Baptist bit came later. Zachariason, that's his last name, actually. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill her promises to her. And then Mary breaks out into song in the presence of her cousin. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary's song, Mary's poem, echoes that prophetic vision of speaking in a language that goes beyond just describing something to meet the deepest part within us, that place where hope resides. And throughout her poem, she's kind of making all of these references to quotes from the Old Testament. And I think this is so important for us to recognize. It's because Mary was immersed in the story of God from when she was little. She was immersed in the Scriptures that she knew the promises of God with every fiber of her being, that Mary was disciplined to know what it was she was looking for. Are you so immersed in the story of God today that you know what you're looking for when God begins to move, when God begins to speak? Do you have the language, not just written on your mind, but written in the deepest part of yourself so that when God begins to speak into your life, when he begins to break open the places of numbness, when he gives you permission to feel again, when he gives you permission to hope again, you know that it's him because it's been written into the fiber of your being. Like Mary, we need to be immersed. We need to be disciplined to know the story of God so that we know his character, we know his promises, 
And when he starts to come through for us, we know that it's him, and we can worship him with joy in the way that Mary does. And it's fascinating, maybe when you look at this poem, it seems like it doesn't necessarily line up with much of what you know to be the Christmas story. That the, the, the first things that Mary wants to say about God's deliverance, he's talking, she's talking about God's justice. And again, justice is another one of those words that maybe we have some very odd ideas of what that means. But for Mary, because she was immersed in the character of God, she knew God's justice means when everything is put the way that he intended, that there's a created order to the universe, that God has a plan, he has a desire, he set everything in place just the way that he wants it to be, and that God's justice is not just about doling out punishment and rewards, but it's actually about resetting the whole thing. It's about redeeming it. It's about rescuing it and bringing everything, not the least the human family, back into relationship with him so that everything can find its proper place. Mary knew the promises that God had given to her ancestor Abraham thousands of years ago, that it's through you, through your seed, that not only am I going to bless your people, I'm going to bless all people everywhere. But before that could happen. Mary knew that the powers and the principalities, the systems in the world that made it work the way that it was, that made everybody feel so numb, those things had to be defeated. The enemies of the flesh, Satan, and the structures of the world. Mary knew that God's justice required all of those things that kept people where they were at. All the things that told people, you you can't go anywhere. You just have to accept your lot in life and just forget about hope, all of those things had to be broken open because power operates on people being hopeless and numb. That's how power works. If you can keep somebody in their place in life where they can't move forward, then you can control them. But God's justice is about breaking people out of those systems of the flesh, the enemy, and the world so that they can actually hope into the new world that he's calling them to. And I think there's something else that's so powerful about Mary's prophetic poem to us that sometimes we have to think in decades and generations to see God's faithfulness, but we can trust it will come. We're conditioned to instant gratification. That if God doesn't show up for us in the next five minutes or even five days or five months, then maybe he's not as faithful as he says that he is. But again, Mary is using that language of talking about all generations. We've been waiting, and it was worth it. And I wonder for you sitting here today, can you have that same kind of courage? When it comes to the things that God is inviting you to hope for, how long are you willing to wait? Which is to say, How worth the promises being fulfilled do you think they really are? Are God's promises only worth something to you if he shows up in the next week, month, year? Or is it worth waiting decades? Is it worth waiting generations to see God fulfill his promises? How worth it are his promises to us? Because now we're talking about what is God like. Now we're talking about his character. 
Is he worthy? Is he faithful? Is he good? And if we can have that patient endurance that hope gives us to stick in it, to continue to participate, to continue to show up, to continue to wrestle out all of our fears and ambiguities, all of our hopelessness and despair, to continue to pursue God's promises for us, we will see him come through. The theologian N.T. Wright speaks about Mary's poem. He says, it's the gospel before the gospel. A fierce, bright shout of triumph 30 weeks before Bethlehem, 30 years before Calvary and Easter. It goes with a swing and a clap and a stamp. It's all about God, and it's all about revolution, and it's all because of Jesus. And so if we're able to name those places in our lives where maybe we're a little bit hopeless because things haven't come true in the way that we thought, if we're able to name those places of hopelessness and numbness, then maybe we can actually begin to work through the process with God to hope again. So I want us to take another time of reflection. But this time I want to ask you, when was a time that you felt such hope that you couldn't contain it. Because it's important that you remember when God has fulfilled his promises in the past. Because it's going to give you courage to continue to hope. And so I want you to close your eyes, and I'm going to pray again, and I want you to consider this with the Holy Spirit. When was a time that you felt so much hope that you couldn't contain it? That like Mary, the song is billowing up from deep within you, and you can't keep it down. Father, I know many of the stories in this room this morning. And I know the hope that is in this room because you have been faithful, because you have showed up for us, because you've spoken out your promises and then you've fulfilled them. That there are so many things in our lives where all you've said to us is just step back and just watch what I do. And you've given us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you recall to our minds right now those moments in our story where we have had so much hope well up in us because of your presence that made us shout for joy. What God has said and what he has done. Can you allow that remembering to give you confidence to come to him again and to say, God, here's the next place that I want to see you move. Here's the, the fleece that I'm laying out for you to see how faithful you are, to see how good you are. It's important that we remember the past to give us that confidence to hope for the future. And so what does this mean for us 2,000 years later in this Advent season? You know, several weeks ago when I was speaking on the sacraments, I was talking about when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's not saying, oh, yes, remember this thing that I did once upon a time, and, you know, maybe it'll make you feel good for the moment. But that word remembrance actually means to take what was true in the past and to bring it into the present so it can continue to do its work again. This is why we want to be a community of remembering, because we're taking what God has done in the past in our personal lives and throughout history, and we want to bring it into the present moment. We want to set it on the table and say, okay, God, like, this is true. Are you going to do it again? Are you going to do more? 
Maybe your hopelessness isn't that you don't believe that God can't move. Maybe it's that you feel like you've reached capacity. And that, yes, God's shown up for you in these level, on these kind of level things, but to hope for even bigger moves of God in your life is maybe just too much. Maybe that's the kind of hopelessness that you're living with today, that your expectations of God are reasonable. And maybe this Advent season, God is asking you to have unreasonable expectations of Him. And this is something that I've learned is so powerful in this, in this invitation to hope in the way that we're called to hope. The frustration that you may feel on a daily basis is a sign that you're alive, that you know things aren't as they should be, and that you were built for a better world. When you feel grief, when you feel despair, when you feel hopelessness, you are alive. You're a human being. And to hide from those feelings is to deny what it means to be a human being because those feelings exist to tell you something. And I think they tell you these two things, that number one, something deep within you knows that this is not the way that things should be. That it's not okay that the world is the way that it is right now. When you read the news and you feel that sense of dread, there's something within you that goes, this isn't right. Because that's God's justice that has been written into your DNA, raising up in righteous indignation to say, I'm not content to allow the world to be the way that it is today. I'm not okay in letting my life be the way that it is today. And that is something that God has placed deep within you that you need to bless, even if it's painful, to admit it, especially when it's painful. But it's also because you were built for a better world. You were built for heaven. You were built to live in a world that we read about in the end of Revelation, that there is no more night, there's no more tears, that God lives in us and among us, and that we reflect that light to one another. You were actually created for that world. And hope tells you that there's a trajectory to the universe. There's a trajectory to your life. But this is what's so powerful about the story of Mary. Mary had to be open-handed with where hope led her in her life. She begins with this story, this, this poem of joy that God is delivering his people, that God's rescuing the world. But if you know the rest of Mary's story, you know it was not without bumps and bruises. But the next thing that we find in her story is actually someone prophesying over you, this child, the pain he goes through will pierce your soul. That when he's 12, she loses him. How many of you have been lost by your parents accidentally, hopefully? Ah, will raise his hand. <laughs> but he's here now. He's here now. The hope... There it is. God fulfills his promises. But she loses her son at 12, and she doesn't understand what he's talking about. He begins his earthly ministry, and she thinks he's a little bit crazy and actually tries to get him to tone it down. You see, even though Mary is given this sense of hope, she had to walk her life open-handed to say, it's not about how I think that God should do this through Jesus. It's about me being attentive and aware to what God is doing. Because I think a lot of times in reality, Hope is not a well-organized plan. Some of you type A personalities need to hear this. 
When God gives you hope, it does not mean he's going to give you the five-step plan for making your life better than it was last week. Because that's still a form of control that actually works out God's presence. But hope is a call to intimacy, to walk with him day by day, open-handed. To say, whatever it's going to look like, God, I don't pretend to know, but I know that you're good and that your mercies endure forever. And so I'm going to trust in that. And I can promise you, I can promise you that when God leads you into your promised land, it will look nothing like what you thought it was going to be. I promise you that. So whatever you envision for your life in a form, as a form of like actually trying to control your life, just go ahead and chuck it out the window right now. Because it will not look anything like what you think. It will be better. It will be better. Because God is good and he is faithful. Wherever he takes us, as individuals, as a community, as the human family, wherever he takes us, by necessity, will surprise and delight us. Because God is good beyond even what we can understand. I see this uh, in the words of another poet in the Old Testament, in Psalm 42, he writes, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When, when can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. The psalmist admits right up front that he's hungering and thirsting. He knows, he feels it, he knows that it's not okay. The way his life is going right now is okay. And he names that. But he recognizes that's actually a hunger and a thirst for God and for God's world. It's a longing for God that's deep within his soul, his feelings of despair and of hopelessness. And so he actually uses those feelings as fuel to command his soul to hope for change, for breakthrough, for the next thing. And so I want to leave you just with these kind of three um, steps, if we can even call them that, for being able to step into hope in this Advent season. Number one, bless your feelings as hunger for God and His new world. When you feel hopelessness, when you feel despair, when you feel anxiety, you're alive and you're a human being. And those feelings are there to tell you something about who you are, and they're an invitation for you to trust in God. That God has woven it into the deepest part of each one of us to hunger and thirst after Him and His new world. Number two, remember who God is and what He's done for you in the past. We have to continue to remember the past, to take what was true back then, to bring it into the present moment, to have this sense of expectation to say, okay, God, I want to see you do it again, or I want to see you do it even more. And so when we take time to remember God's character, 
to remember what he's done for us, what he's done for other people throughout history, it gives us that platform of confidence to begin to hope for the next thing. And then finally, command your soul to hope. Command your soul to hope. You are not powerless to your feelings. They are there to be blessed and to name something for you. But they do not have to have power over you. And I love that this is what the psalmist does. He says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. You can feel that kind of, there's a mandate there. He says, no, put your hope in God, for I'm going to praise him, especially when I don't feel like it. And when we learn that the discipline to command our souls to hope, we actually open ourselves up to a world of possibility. I want to invite you to stand with me. There's this beautiful quote that I couldn't find the original author for. It's attributed to John Lennon and a bunch of other people. But it says, we know it's the end when everything's okay. And so if it's not okay, it's not the end. And how divine is that? If you know that things are not okay as they are today, then you know it's not the end, that there's more to come, that God is going to do something in that. But in the meantime, the invitation for you is to actively wait with hopeful expectation. So I want you to put your hands out in front of you in a posture of receiving. And before we worship God as that command to our souls to hope, to say we're not powerless to our feelings, but they are there to invite us into a deeper revelation of God. I'm going to read over you the words of Paul. He writes to us, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Your salvation is nearer now than when you walked through the door. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. May you, in this Advent season, put on that armor of light that gives you hope beyond hope to see God move in your story and the lives of those around you as he leads us to the next place. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.